Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Phil Green, the founder and partner of Alcyon, a privately owned financier and multi-asset manager. Alcyon has invested over $5 billion worth of capital with an approximate return of 21% IRR. They currently have $3.5 billion of funds under management, and 80% of their investments are backed by real assets or property. It's a real treat to talk to Phil, and he's very generous with his time and generous in sharing his experience. This includes his experience at Arthur Anderson, where he developed tax and structuring expertise, as well as his time as CEO of Babcock & Brown, the well-publicized and known corporate failure. It's these learnings that I think you'll find most intriguing in how they've built resilience and made Phil and Alcyon a much better investor, but I also think you can take away yourself to become a better investor. Please remember, this podcast isn't designed to be specific advice. People are encouraged to do their own due diligence and take advice before making any investments. Also, please remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks a lot. Phil Green, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. Nice to be with you. Well, Phil, uh, look, I've been looking forward to this interview and having you uh, on on the episode, on the show. Uh, Perhaps you could kick off by giving our listeners uh, a bit of a background to yourself, who you are and and, and what your history is in in the finance industry. Well, I'm uh, a founder of Alcyon, uh, which we started uh, back in effectively 2010, or actually First deal was uh, 2009, prior to uh, to actually formally setting up Alcyon, um, uh, which was actually right at the bottom of the market post the, the financial crisis. Um, prior to that, my career in the financial world started uh, of a commerce law degree. I started with Arthur Anderson um, in the tax division and uh, as a result of being in the right place at the right time, I finished up specialising in what was then tax-based finance, a lot of leasing and other structured finance that um, generated tax benefits for the investors. Um, and uh, one of the clients was a guy by the name of Jim Babcock who came over from San Francisco to do some leasing and uh, Uh, I did some work for him and then he asked me, uh, together with a couple of other guys, to set up an Australian business, which we did in 1984. And uh, that was a private partnership, um, which I basically ran locally from 1988 to 2004. Uh, Halfway through that process, um, the group was integrated um, I was one of four members of an executive committee that managed that global business. And then in 2004, we listed that business as Babcock and Brown Limited on the Australian market. Um, uh, and the business was very much, a, I suppose, a mini Macquarie. We were uh, focused on property infrastructure, a little bit of private equity. Uh, of course, uh, unfortunately, we uh, we went into the uh, financial crisis with a 
with a over-leveraged balance sheet in hindsight. Um, we didn't have any safeguards around being a bank and getting government guarantees. And, uh, you know, with the uh, drop in asset values that occurred, um, unfortunately, Babcock Round didn't survive GFC. Um, and uh, then uh, in 2009, um, as I said at the bottom of the market, um, Trevor Lowenson, who had worked with me at Babcock and Brown, identified an opportunity. Um, he sent sent it over to me. Sorry. And uh, that was buying a mortgage portfolio, Australian mortgage portfolio. Um, uh, literally, and we signed a term sheet buying out General Motors acceptances, um, Australian mortgage book, literally the day the S&P 500 hit the bottom in 2009. And uh, we did that deal. It was very successful and became the forerunner to establishing Alcyon. And Alcyon today has about $3 billion a little over $3 billion of assets under management, 70% in real estate, a lot in first mortgage uh, funding, which is the complete antithesis of Babcock and Brown, which was built around using leverage. Today, we're lending more money than we're borrowing in our structures. Um, and uh, Alcyon's now been operating for pretty much... Uh, little over 11 years since we formally established it. Um, it's still uh, very closely controlled by the three founding partners, myself, Trevor Lowenson and Morris Simons. Um, we're the investment committee. Um, we invest in every deal that we do personally. And uh, it, we now have about 70 people around the country. Um, originating, managing, and administering uh, investments. I feel it's always easy to talk about our successes, but it's often said that we learn much more when things don't quite go the way we wanted or expected. I think you've alluded to some of the key learnings, but what, what from your perspective, were the key learnings from that or, or things that you've taken out of that Babcock and Brown era that's made you a better investor today? Um, the reality of the history of Babcock and Brown, if I look around the world today at, at the assets that Babcock and Brown owned in 2008, um, there's not a lot to learn about how to analyse an investment opportunity. Most of those investments uh, are now valued at way above where they were in 2008 and form the cornerstones of some of the most successful pools of infrastructure, real estate. Um, uh, you know, uh, we had a big portfolio in multifamily assets. We had we were an early mover in in infrastructure in pub in public private partnerships. Um, the aircraft leasing business today uh, still exists. Obviously, it's been impacted by COVID very specifically. But the, the two things that 
that I got wrong and we got wrong at Babcock and Brown was we took gearing to an extreme. So we were overgeared at multi-levels within the structure. And just, just the pace of growth. Um, and that was partly driven by, you know, a listed vehicle and and our own success in the sense that, you know, public markets tend to, uh, as as a close friend of mine told me when we went public in 2004, you're getting on a treadmill and the faster you run, the faster the market wants you to run. And, you know, I fell in, we fell into that trap. So they're the big learnings. One is to just be more cautious about leverage, use it wisely. Um, don't just take money because it's been thrown at you by the markets. Um, and, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's a good lesson at the moment when debt is very cheap. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the incentive there is to, to gear up more and more, but, you know, that will change and asset values will go, do go through cycles. And uh, so we're in our scene a hell of a lot more cautious about how we use debt. And as I said a bit earlier, um, for the most part, and certainly for the first time in my career at, uh, in the last five years, we've been more borrowers because that's where the premium return for risk has been, than uh, more lenders, sorry, than borrowers because that's where the premium for risk has been. Um, as the banks, particularly in the in the real estate development area, have pulled out of the market, um, the opportunities to earn double digit returns, um, you know, when bank interest has been so low, so you've been earning ten percent premium or 8% premium to what you would if you put your money in the bank, really for taking the same risk as the banks would were taking. If you were a depositor, the banks are lending your money out uh, at the same risk as we're lending the money out, only we're paying to the investor 9, 10%. Um, the banks are paying 1%. Or, you know, a couple of years ago, we're paying 2, two or 2.5%. Two so... Uh, you know, that's, that's probably the biggest, well, it is definitely the biggest change in, in, uh, in what Alcyon does compared with, say, where Babcock and Brown was 15 years ago. And, and to give an order of magnitude around that, perhaps for the listeners, are, are you able to give some colour in terms of within the real estate investments where your equity investors, for instance, um, what sort of gearing you're comfortable with today versus might you, you may have been... Uh, back in Babcock and Brown days, for instance, are we talking about an order of magnitude of two, or in terms of the? Well, level I, of I think I think back in the Babcock and Brown days, um, you know, it was about gearing as much as you could get, and generating the equity returns out of that, um, and you know, I suppose in the belief that, and to some extent, in, in I suppose, uh, our defence, we believe we were investing largely because most a lot of the portfolio was actually uh, infrastructure, that we were, we were investing in defensive assets. With, with, and even our real estate investments generally had strong cash flows attached to them. That, that the, we, never, we, we ne never negatively geared in investment. We always bought income streams that more than service the debt. 
because that didn't didn't help when valuations just declined universally. So it's really around, we still have the same view that we don't negatively gear. Um, we want good cash flow coverage. We probably, you know, whereas 15 years ago, we might've done a deal at 1.2 to one cash flow cover. Today we, one, because interest rates are so low. And, and if, you, if you're only gearing to say 50% rather than 80%, um, you're going to have two or three times uh, cash flow coverage. Your, your, your income is going to be three times your interest expense. Um, so there, that's the sort of model. But, you know, take it even further. Um, if, you, if you can earn 10% lending money at, say, 60% loan to value, and you're going to earn 15% putting the equity in and borrowing the money at 10%, then risk-reward basis, you would never do the equity. You are, you'll be the lender, not the, not the equity owner. And that's where we've been for the last five years. It sounds, uh, it sounds to me, Phil, that you're, you're really saying that the assets at the core uh, of the Babcock and Brown strategy were fundamentally sound and proven to be so. It was really some of the structuring that was around it. Um, and almost makes me think of the client who, who tells me often that, um, uh, you know, about the six foot tall person who drowns crossing the five foot, the, the river that's on average five foot deep, because there was one part of that river that was eight foot deep and uh, just that one little part. And we know it also sounds to me that you're saying one of the other key learnings is uh, how fickle public markets can be in not reflecting the true value. And it sounds like, um, I guess the question then following that is, would, there, would I take it as a given that you'd never look at listing Alcyon? Uh, I think you can, look, you never say never. Yeah. Um, but you can pretty, take it a given that, that probably Phil Green won't be involved. Yeah. So, so is there... Um, uh, or if I am, it'd be on the periphery. Uh, but, but I think it's, it, it'll be pretty close to never. Um, uh, you know, could we have some listed products? Yes. I mean, the, the other big mistake in Babcock and Brown days was that the, the core operating com company had no reason to be leveraged, yet we did. Um, and that was part of the sort of uh, the point about growing too fast. We used debt to to underwrite assets, bring them on balance sheet, and then distribute those out into products. And, you know, we were too thinly capitalised in, you know, if you, put, if you looked at our market cap, we were a huge company, but if you actually looked at our balance sheet and looked at the hard assets we had on the balance sheet, we were very thinly capitalised. And that was a function of where we came from. And we didn't need to do that, you know, and that, you know, if I look at, the biggest mistake I made and, you know, I made for myself, for, for the investors that were in Babcock and Brown was that, that we did that. And, uh, you know, we could have survived the GFC if we didn't have leverage, we could have still been managing those assets. But you can't look backwards. Today, um, you know, Alcyon's a very successful business. Um, it's been a silver lining personally. And, um, uh, you know, the fact that I'm not, 
operating in a listed market. I'm healthier, have less stress, and enjoy my life a lot more. So, Phil, let, let's talk a little bit more about uh, Alcyon and where it currently sits and, and its suite uh, of products and offerings. Um, from my understanding, it's about 80% property exposed. And then uh, the other three parts of the business are really private equity, uh, credit, um, and then liquid strategies. In, in fact, uh, Daniel Chernsky was on the podcast in episode number 69. Some listeners right. might remember that and it has been a very good outcome or been traveling very well. Um, I guess one of the things I'm interested in is understanding, it seems the group has done a lot of um, closed end special purpose vehicle investments. Is that the preference? Uh, you know, it goes back to historically, that's that's where Babcock and Brown started. The reality is that, um, you know, we, we started Alcyon with the support of historically people that had been investors with Babcock and Brown or uh, around that, um, that had made money through the years and, and whatever, were very supportive. And, you know, generating, uh, you would know as well or better than me that, you know, trying to start a business with blind funds, um, getting investment, uh, you know, getting onto um, investment, uh, you know, approved investment lists um, with people like Coda takes time, takes track record. Um, you know, my recent track record at the start of Al uh, at the start of Alcyon uh, didn't necessarily help, um, and so it was a matter of working with people that knew us, that were prepared to support us, keen to to participate in deals that we identified as delivering value. And so we built up basically identifying specific assets using some of our own capital um, to secure those assets. And, uh, um, and those investors supporting, supporting it. And, you know, in a cycle, uh, and uh, again, you know, we were, it was a, it was a great time to invest if you had the courage to invest post the GFC. There was a lot of value around. And so, you know, investors did very well and we kept on going and we built up a network of family office investors, which we still have today. And it's an ever-growing network. And a lot of those investors make quick decisions, can make quick decisions, but they like to see what they're investing in. Now, they're larger pools of capital. They have larger amounts to invest. Um, the or 50% of them are astute investors. The other 50% these days tend to just participate on the basis that we're recommending it, we're co-investing in it. Um, over time, some of those, but it involves a lot more administration not just for us, but for the, for the people that are investing. Um, they're often dribbling money in month by month. Um, you get to a point with those people that you say, well, this is a bit silly on both fronts, maybe we'll have a fund. And so today we have some funds that are delivering the same outcomes. They're investing as the, in the same deals as the syndicates, but it, 
you know, the syndicate appeals to the people that want to see exactly what they're putting in and the, and the, the, the funds appeal to people that, you know, accept that they're investing in the same thing. They're going to put the same amount of money into a deal. They can get a better spread for a small amount of money, better spread of risk. Um, and so we now cater to both. I want to say in, in doing, looking at some numbers in preparing for this, I, I saw there was something like $5 billion worth of capital that's been deployed and an average IRR of just north of 21%, which is really impressive. Uh, one of the things I am keen to understand is how you determine when you have a deal or a transaction, where it fits into, where, how do you determine whether it goes into a fund, a special purpose vehicle, and, and what, what are the rules or who determines who eats first, if you'd like? Well, really, let, let's be clear. We, we have, we're involved today only in really three funds. Right? We have the liquid strategies, which is a you know, standalone equities, listed equities uh, vehicle. And there's no, there's no issue there. Um, you know, Daniel has a small team. We share, he shares ideas with, myself and Trevor and, and Morris, to some extent, we'll discuss macro issues, but he's running that fund. His team are making the investment decisions and that's in, in liquid asset, uh, equities. Mm -hmm. um, we have at Alcyon at the core of our, our mortgage uh, business now, we have a debt fund, which is getting up to 400 million out of about you know, one and a half billion dollars of, of uh, oh, no, close to two billion dollars of real estate assets, but one and a half million of one and a half billion of of debt, mostly senior debt, a little bit of subordinated debt or second mortgage, whatever you, however you want to describe it. Mm -hmm. um, now that fund, basically. The structure of the fund, the nature of it, because the capital is is in there and is not coming in progressively, basically both commercially and and from a an allocation policy point of view, the objective is to have that fund fully invested. So, and then the balance of the opportunities um, are then syndicated out in. In um, in syndicates um, on a on an asset pool by by asset pool basis. So we might be, you know, writing on average a hundred million dollars of mortgage loans a month. Um, probably realistically, you know, thirty percent today is going into the fund, and seventy percent is being funded outside the fund. But the fund is always fully invested as best we can. Um, for a start, economically, we've got cash sitting in the bank earning 0%. Um, you know, the performance of the fund's going backwards and we that's not good for our business. So uh, there's a commercial incentive on us to keep it invested um, uh, as well as, as our allocation policy. Now, Phil, uh Listeners to the podcast will be familiar with Michael Heiner, who featured in uh, episode 34 of the podcast uh, as, as being a very successful person in the wealth management area. Uh, he also, I understand, uh, has quite a history 
uh, with yourself and, and, and the group. And I think uh, you sat on his board or the, the group's board uh, of the Heiner family or the, the Heiner company back in 1987. But Michael actually described you as... Um, 97, actually. <laughs> 97, was it? Yeah, not 87. Oh, okay. well, no, I've known Michael and dealt with him since 1987, but... Uh, Babcock and Brown bought into Heiner and I went onto the board, I think, in 97. 97. Well, thanks for the clarification. I must have got it confused there. But um, he's described you as a, a, a great thinker and, and a great deal doer. Um, what are some of the things you look for uh, and or insist upon when you're looking at those deals? Um, generally, I'm a much better... Generally, I look for cash flow. I'm an old-style investor. I struggle uh, with some of this technology investing uh, in in the valuations, in analysing it. I, I that's not to say that I don't invest in technology personally, because I think today, if you want to create wealth, you have to be invested in some of these disruptive technologies. The, the, the world is changing; it's changing rapidly. And you can't just stick with, you know, historic investments. Um, but generally, my skill is in identifying and analysing undervalued cash flow uh, and, and opportunistically taking often counter-cyclical views on that or at least uh, quickly identifying a value a value proposition. Um, you know, I could give you a, a simple example within the Alcyon history, um, you know, probably seven or eight years ago now, um, one of my ex-employees at Babcock and Brown, who now runs our Queensland business, um, came to us and said, oh, I've got this opportunity, we can buy these caravan parks at an 11% yield and we convert them into permanent home parks and you rent out the space, the, the people buy the homes, demountable homes, they bring them to your caravan park, put them on your block of land. They'll pay, they pay land rent, but they own the house. They can take it away, but they probably never will. They'll sell it in situ. Um, and although the yield might go down, the certainty of income, so the rent they'll pay for that landlord might be less than you would earn, you know, in the summer holidays on a caravan park. But overall, so instead of getting 11% yield where you had interruptible income, lower, lower quality income stream, we ended up with a 9% rental that was a secure rental stream, often partly subsidised because they're often retirees that were getting pension and they were getting rental subsidy from the government, paying a low rent on the land and at a fully occupied basis. That was a very high quality income stream. Well, you know, I, we took the view that one day that that income stream would be valued properly by the market at 5% 5, 5 yield, and we were buying in at 9% yield. We built a portfolio. Ultimately, 
that portfolio was listed as Gateway and subsequently taken over by a US fund. Um, but, you know, that was a case of identifying a high quality income stream that wasn't valued by, or even understood by the market at the time. Um, and, you know, generally I make those decisions quickly. That doesn't mean you don't do the due diligence, but you'll, you'll identify the value opportunity quickly and, and you're decisive and prepared to, to make that decision. You're not waiting for somebody else to do it and then follow them into it. Um, and I think that's probably, you know, in recent times, one of the better examples. Uh, even our, our position in being a first mortgage lender, if I go back six or seven years, um, we were providing mezzanine debt, preferred equity to developers, you know, when the Chinese um, were coming out here by the plane load and buying apartments off the plan. The banks were lending money at low margins and we were getting 20% returns on mezzanine debt. Often we were getting more a better return than the, than the developer themselves because they had a, a view they're going to make so much money out of this deal. Uh, it took them six months longer to build and, and sell than they thought and all of a sudden our 20% is compounding up and eating away at their equity. Um, they were doing all the work taking the most of the risk um, and we ended up with better returns than them. Um, somewhere along the line in five or six years ago, all of a sudden our competitors were doing the same thing at 12% returns. Meanwhile, the banks were pulling back and we saw the opportunity we could earn 2% less, but we could be the first mortgage lender. Well, again, it made no sense to be doing mezzanine debt at even 14% if you could get 11% being the senior lender with really no risk. And, um, you know, while we haven't lost a dollar in the last 11 years doing either mez or senior debt, I can tell you um, when you're doing senior debt, you sleep even easier at night uh, than when you're doing good quality mez deals, um, you know, Quite frankly, for us, because we've got the experience of being equity as well as debt, the few times that we've had to get more active as a senior lender and go in and, and, and exercise on our security, we've actually made more money for us and our investors than the ones that have, that have uh, had no issues because there's more than enough equity there to absorb any of the potential things that can go wrong. And Phil, how are you finding that senior debt market five years on today? Uh, we are seeing or hearing anecdotally that it's becoming more competitive, more crowded. I'm interested in your view. Well, it's definitely becoming more crowded. Um, so there is a balance. And what, 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 what the influx of money, and that, you know, if you look at it, there's actually less opportunities than there were five or six years ago. There's less development. And there's a lot of uh, house and land stuff going on. But if you look at apartment development, the market's slowed down dramatically. You've only got to look at the statistics, the number of new developments, the ability to get for developers to get pre-sales and de-risk the project has slowed down. It's picking up a little bit now, but it, 
uh, with investors coming back into the market with these low interest rates and um, elevated stock market valuations. But um, so it's becoming crowded. The, the, that's pushing returns down. And we also seeing some of our competitors taking more risk in that space for a lower return. And that's when you have to get cautious. You know, if you're taking, you know, if returns get pushed down a little bit, and especially when you're earning zero return in the bank, I think, you know, from an investor point of view, you're better off, you know, earning 7% on your money and, and sleeping easy at night, knowing that you, you really are invested in what is truly a first mortgage position, rather than, you know, starting to get higher returns or, or look for too much higher returns um, and find that your first mortgage lender is lending at 75%, not 65% of value. Um, and that is happening a little bit out there. Um, so, uh, but, you know, mostly, uh, but the, by the same token, the market um, is strong. So the risk uh, is a little bit less. Um, you know, I think the other side of it is is with, this is all development finance. It's generally construction finance. So, you know, making sure that that you're investing with people that know the market um, and, and understand how to manage out of issues that may arise during a development is also uh, an important aspect to, to consider. But um, certainly, you know, returns have come down from 11 to 12%. I mean, we're offering, uh, you know, 18, 12, 24 months ago, we were certainly delivering our investors returns of double digit returns on first mortgage opportunities. Today, um, net, we're, we're sort of in the eight to nine. And Phil, have you looked at all at, or written any agriculture loans or would you look in that space ever? Um, uh, not really, no. Um, I mean, we don't, we don't do a lot in, in mining and I never have. It's the one asset class that, um, that I've never had a big exposure to and I, I don't profess to to just know enough technically to be comfortable with. Um, and agriculture is the same, you know, soft products. I've, I've had an impersonal investment in a, in a farm that didn't end up that well. And uh, so I tend to shy away with it. But um, uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, we, you know, again, if something just stands out as a, as a ridiculously low risk for, for return, um, where there's abundance of security. Um, you know, one of the big advantages that we have and one of the things that's, we, we have a significant balance sheet that we are happy to use to underwrite and secure opportunities. So we can often deliver, you know, a one to 2% premium return by moving quickly um, by the level of confidence we can give the counterparty that the deal is going to get done. Um, 
without taking any additional risk. So that doesn't mean we do any less due diligence. It just means that, you know, I can sit across the table or one of my partners can sit across the table and say, well, if, you're, if what you're telling us stands up to due diligence, this is the deal we will do and you can have your money by the time you need it. And for that certainty, they'll pay a the market will pay a premium. And that's, that's really a big key to, to our success and, and our ability to, to generate those returns um, for the same risk. And I would say, you know, on our senior debt even, we're, we're probably able, through offering that certainty, to generate about a 1%, uh, over across the portfolio, a 1% outperformance. Um, which when you're earning eight nine percent instead of eight percent is meaningful. It sure is, Phil. Uh, you alluded to it a moment ago in terms of valuations, but I'm keen to get your view on where markets are at. I, I'm guessing there's a lot of conversation around at the moment, and noting that Alcyon's I think history is about eighty percent in property or real asset-backed transactions, and we, we've almost had this perfect interest rate environment over the last 40 years of continually uh, declining interest rates, which have been a huge tailwind for hard assets and property. I'm interested in your view uh, for investors moving forward, um, what, what you're seeing and how you're seeing markets at the moment. Well, clearly, you know, interest rates um, are driving cap rates down on on income producing property in a time of uncertainty. You know, I think if you, you've got to look at the markets differently, although, you know, often, you know, when you have these big events, everything's correlated and liquidity becomes important. So people sell whatever they can sell. So, you know, 2008, 18 months ago, when the world didn't know what COVID was going to bring, everyone panicked and sold whatever they could. Um, but looking at the environment today, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, off at the office market, you, you're seeing record low cap rates where assets are trading. Um, you know, part of that is interest. Part of that is a massive amount of liquidity in the market. In a world where nobody, I, I, I defy anyone to really predict accurately what the office market is going to look like in three years' time, you know, are 20%, are people going to work three days a week in the office, four days a week in the office? You know, is, is that going to mean that they're still going to have to have a desk there anyway and therefore the office, the, the companies are still going to have the same square meterage of office space? Is it going to shrink? You know, my view is potentially the demand for office space might decline by 20%. If if you take the view that in the long term, people are going to want to work from home one day a week. Um, so, you know, do I see a lot of value in office space? Does that mean there are no opportunities in that space? No, but does it mean that overall? Does the space look fully valued at relative to risk? I would have thought so. You know, you can turn around and say logistics, you know, as, as fully valued as it is, you can understand why people are investing and paying that price for that. You know, uh, 
some retail looks okay, other retail looks very high risk. Um, if you look at, uh, and there's no question that, you know, when interest rates do go up, and they will have to go up eventually, um, you know, if, if you look at what the central banks are saying, you know, there was all of a sudden bond rates jumped up three months ago, they've now come back a little bit. But, you know, again, even that rise in bond rates was a bit, I think the market overreacted because if you if you take what the central banks are saying around the world, they want to see inflation at two to three percent. Negative interest rates forever are unsustainable. So if inflation is running at two percent, then historically you would expect the bond rate to be not less than three percent. Now we've still got bond rates at one and a half percent. By the same token, you know if you talk about residential property. Historically, you know, residential property is a nice hedge against inflation. You want to own real estate if inflation is going up. So, you know, there's a lot of self-correcting uh, pressures on the, on the, on the residential market. Um, the most important thing for the residential market in Australia is that we get back to a world of population growth. I mean, what we've seen in the COVID period is there's a lot of Australians coming home, no Australians leaving. So statistically, we've had zero population growth, but that hasn't meant that there hasn't been a massive increase in owner-occupied demand for housing. At the high end with, with some wealthy successful expats coming home. And at the lower end, you know, you've got this first home buyer market where, you know, if you go from the 80s to, you know, the, the, the 2019, the average age of the first home buyer had gone out probably 10 years. What COVID and these low interest rates have done is pulled that back. And you know the, the numbers are really telling. And if you've got a young couple, you know, in their late twenties today, and let's say they've saved fifty thousand dollars, and they've got parents that have paid off most of their mortgage, or got a bit of cash in the bank, and you know, and we've seen it in the press to talk about the bank of mum and dad. You know, if they go and borrow $150,000 against what is now a $2 million house in Castle Hill or $3 million house in Castle Hill that they bought when Castle Hill was, you know, the land of new subdivisions. Um, that's costing them 2%, $3,000 a year in mortgage, payment, in mortgage payments. Their kids were paying six or seven, six hundred dollars a week in rent, it's 30 grand a year. They can go and borrow $800,000 and pay $16,000 in interest, pay their parents the $4,000 in interest, 20,000, they're $10,000 better off and they bought a house for a million dollars. That economics is compelling.
And that's what's happening out there. Um, so there's real demand for this housing. Um, uh, it's going to continue to, hopefully there's enough supply that, and I think there is enough supply and ultimately that amount of demand will, will flatten out and so prices will flatten out. Um, and, you know, the only, until we get to a real growth, interest rates aren't going to go up and hopefully as that's in a world where we start to have more immigration, there's more demand and um, prices will go up with inflation and inflation and interest rates will reflect the inflation rate. So housing, I, I don't see housing having a dramatic fall. Uh, it will certainly flatten. It may decline for a short period of time if there's gaps. Um, but I think, you know, the fact that home ownership is going to increase through this period, not back to the levels in the 70s or whatever, but back above where it had fallen to is a positive thing. You add to that an environment where this sort of Zoom technology, et cetera, means people can work from home, spend a little bit more time, and you're seeing the, the sort of focus on people having a house, being prepared to live a bit further out because they're not commuting as often. Uh, they think they can work from home uh, more. Uh, yeah, uh, it's not a bad thing. And uh, and I don't, you know, reasonably comfortable that the residential market is, is not going to uh, suffer bad. I mean, if interest rates jump very quickly, the market will slow until they come back. But housing is such a big driver of our economy that the cycles uh, are reasonably short. Yeah. Uh, a big drop in the housing market causes a quick drop in interest rates. Yeah. Phil, I think it's been a, a wonderful episode and thanks for sharing your time. Can I ask perhaps if you had any, if you could share any thoughts or advice you may have for uh, people out there and clients managing their own wealth, what, what would be your key advice to them in summing up? Well, I think, um, you know, be aware of risk. Don't, don't be greedy. Um, I think, you know, it uh, doesn't mean all the time that, one, if, you, if, you, if you're not confident, then get, get good advice. That's for a start. Um, and secondly, uh, you know, you have to be one patient, um, do your homework and don't be, don't just chase returns because the headline return is high. Understand why, if you're going to go for high returns, understand why they're high, um, or, you know, be a little bit risk averse, particularly in this environment where you've got high return, uh, uh, high valuations, interest rates that can't go any lower, so they can only go one way. When they will go up is another question, but they can only go up. Um, then it is a time to be a little bit cautious. Um, and, uh, yeah, and don't be, don't just be a follower. You know, the people that lose money are the last people in, in a high market. People who make money are the first people in in a low market. 
so, you know, be, do your homework and, and make decisions based on fundamentals, not on what the next guy might be doing. I think that's a wonderful way uh, to finish it. Thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us in Inside the Rope. No problem. Pleasure, David. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.